The opinions expressed in the Palace of Glittering Delights are mine and mine alone. No one would be stupid enough to hold them. The things discussed in the Palace of Glittering Delights may lead to spoilers if you have not seen the topic of today's episode. There may also be occasional ranting and swearing. Don't say I didn't warn you. And so, I'm returning to the amazing Spider-Man. Specifically, the run of comics written by Len Wein and drawn by Ross Andrew. This is part five of that, covering the final arc by that creative team. Covering issues 176 through 180, which is one five-part story. My coverage of this era started with part one, which was in episode 199 of this show. Part 2 was in episode 202, part 3 was in episode 204, and part 4 in episode 208. Prior to that, there are episodes covering every issue written by Stan Lee, Denny O'Neill, Marv Wolfen, and the David Michelinie and Todd McFarlane run. Go and listen to them. If you've listened to them, listen to them again. Or tell someone who hasn't listened to them to do so. It would be very much appreciated. Amazing Spider-Man issue 176 through 180, a cover dated January through May 1978, and all feature titles that have Goblin in them except the first part, which for the first time doesn't shoot its load straight out of the gate. A lot of issues of Spider-Man, like Dalek stories in Doctor Who, make a big reveal of the enemy, only to have already had the reveal spoiled by the cover or the title. I mean, do we really think a story called Day of the Daleks isn't going to have the Daleks in it? This avoids that. Part 1 is called He Who Laughs Last, which I think is also a Batman issue about the Joker. It keeps the main antagonist off the cover so as to maintain the surprise. The subsequent chapters are called Goblin in the Middle, Green Grows the Goblin, The Goblin's Always Greener, and who was that goblin I saw you with? In case you haven't figured it out, the villain is the Green Goblin. All the issues are written by Len Wein with art by Ross Andrew, as already mentioned, but the inkers for this story were Tony Dizaniga, Mike Esposito and Jim Mooney. Rather oddly, none of the covers were handled by John Romita. Rather regular penciler Ross Andrew handled all of them, with inks by his usual inkers Frank Gayakoya and Mike Esposito for issues 176, 179 and 180, and curiously, long-time Fantastic Four inker Joe Sinnott for issues 177 and 178. Sinnott only inks Spider-Man very rarely, a couple of spectacular Spider-Man covers and annual number 11 being the only other times, although I am open to correction by someone more learned than I. The covers are all pretty good, suitably 70s in their melodrama and action. Issue 176 keeps the villain of the piece out of sight, allowing for one of those it can't be 
you type covers, whilst the other four all offer variations on the theme of Spider-Man fighting the Green Goblin, with issue 178 being my personal favourite, as it shows Mary Jane attending to a bedridden Aunt May as Spider-Man fights the Goblin outside the hospital window. It's my preferred cover of this match, as it highlights the dichotomy of Peter's life, the personal toll being Spider-Man takes upon him. The first issue manages to slow down and take its time a tad, which is a nice change of pace from the ramrod speed of the last bunch of issues, which were all fast-paced two-part stories. We pick up immediately where we left off, with Spider-Man dropping Jonah off at the Bugle after Jonah's kidnapping by the Hitman. This, I feel, was actually a bit of a wasted opportunity and could have had some small measure of character development between the two of them. A tacit acknowledgement, perhaps, from Jonah that Spider-Man did actually save his life. Maybe a slight sense of gratitude from Spidey that Jonah even mentioned it. Sadly, Ween, perhaps knowing he was already leaving, elects to reset the status quo. Jonah is irascible, vowing to destroy Spider-Man on social media. Or in the newspaper, anyway. This was the 70s. Spider-Man plays the usual childish tricks on him, such as webbing him to a chair and then spinning it, leaving Jonah dizzy and disorientated before Jonah bangs his head on the window as Spider-Man swings away. It is a funny opening, even if it's pretty textbook. Wayne is clearly clearing the decks for the next writer, something emphasised in the next scene. After a night's sleep, Peter awakens to learn the bullet wound he sustained a few issues ago has completely healed, not even leaving a scar, removing the need for future artists to remember that he once got shot in that arm. There's an implication here that there is an element of accelerated healing to Peter's powers I don't think has been hinted at before. I mean, he's always had superior powers of recuperation, but post-Wolverine, it's hard not to extrapolate that this is the healing factor in play. After all, his powers did fix his eyesight. It's nice to spend some time with Peter, the first time we've done this in a while. He learns that Aunt May has taken her protest from last issue to City Hall. The issue doesn't mention that the protest was about rent control. Rather, it implies it's a catch-all protest about the rights of the elderly. But either way, the framing of this is interesting. Unprovoked, May hits a policeman over the head with her placard, the policeman yanks the placard from her hands, causing May to suffer a heart attack. And we're in some grey territory here. May's right to protest is unassailable. But she does assault the cop, who up to this point was being quite reasonable. However, when Peter sees the altercation, he throws the policeman across the steps in his desperation to get to May. This was a far more believable interpretation of how Peter would act, as opposed to what we saw in Amazing Spider-Man Annual 11, whereby Peter let May be manhandled and arrested to cover his own secret. The cop snaps, pulls a gun on them both, which is where this situation could have gone sideways for all concerned, had the cop's partner, a far more level-headed gentleman, not intervened. Cop 1 even feels some measure of guilt for his actions. Interestingly, Cop 2 refers to Peter being under stress, and that would explain his sudden increased strength, rather than him being superpowered, which is the conclusion Cop 1 leaps to. 
The Incredible Hulk TV movies hadn't erred when this came out, and tapping into the latent hidden strength is the premise of that film. So I wonder how long that idea was floating around in the public consciousness before that TV show cemented its popularity. Peter and Mary Jane meet at the hospital, and after being assured that May is feeling better, MJ is aching for another booty call. I mentioned last time that Peter and Mary Jane are now in the friends with benefits section of their relationship, and upon leaving the hospital, MJ asks, your place or mine? Peter demures because he's clearly off his rocker, and says he's off to Dr. Hamilton's office to meet Harry. There's no implication that this was a pre-arranged meeting, so why is he going to Hamilton's rather than to Flash and Harry's apartment? It's never explained. In fact, given that Peter ends up at Flash and Harry's place anyway, having him head right there would have expedited matters. It would also have allowed Peter to take Mary Jane upon her offer. Still, he doesn't. And as Mary Jane jumps into a taxi, they both flash each other the peace sign. Alanis would have been proud. Peter's visit to Hamilton's office reveals it to be trashed, with both Hamilton and Harry missing. There's no flies on Peter, so he jets straight over to the apartment Flash and Harry sure. He finds Flash unconscious, the apartment trashed, and the Green Goblin lying in wait. The implication is that Harry has snapped and reverted back to his old ways. Peter becomes Spider-Man, and Ross Andrew handles the fight scene well, particularly the close-quarters battle with Spidey and the Goblin, and it all culminates with the Goblin throwing Flash out of the third-story window to his death. We've never seen the Goblin throw somebody off something before. It's, it's, a, it's a whole new thing that I think they're trying out. All in all, though, this was a decent opening issue, setting up the plot well. There's the requisite attention to Peter's personal life, the subplots, the reveal that Harry may have become the Goblin again, plus new developments such as May's heart attack. Sadly, we squander the chance to do a different kind of goblin story and instead dive straight back into the tried and true with the following issues. See, in his early appearances, the goblin was a wannabe mobster interested in taking over the New York rackets, leading us to initially believe that the goblin himself was some kind of underworld crime figure before he adopted the green and purple suit. When it was revealed he was industrialist Norman Osborn, this was dropped, and killing or taunting Spider-Man pretty much became the Goblin's reason for being. It's part of the reason I believe he was killed off. There wasn't really anywhere else for the character to go. In this issue, this part of the Goblin's persona is resurrected, with the Goblin once again trying to take over the New York rackets, this time from Silvermane. Interestingly, the Goblin never went up against the Kingpin in this kind of battle, largely because the Goblin was more or less done with all that taking over the rackets thing when the Kingpin started making his regular appearances. In this case, Silvermane has picked up right where he left off way, way back and started to make a bid for consolidating all of the mobsters in New York under his umbrella. Now, I know what you're thinking, and you're right. Andrew, you're thinking, isn't Silvermane dead? Well, yes, lovely listener, if you have read Amazing Spider-Man 75, it certainly looked like that, didn't it? For those that don't recall, and if not, you can listen to me talk about it back in episode 125, in a nutshell, Silvermane was pursuing the Fountain of Youth, and in so doing, was de-aged back to nothingness. 
As far as dead goes, you look pretty damn dead to me. However, this is comics, Jake, and death is no longer the obstacle it once was to getting ahead in crime. In Daredevil issue 122, it is revealed that Silvermane bounced back like a rubber band from being nothing more than a sperm wriggling around on the floor to a younger, more vital version of himself. Now, who at Marvel was clamouring for Silvermane to be resurrected, I'll never know. And it does get worse for the poor guy as it goes along. But for now, we are left with the question, well, why is he old again? This is an excellent question, and one not addressed in this story. But Andrew, what a Flash Thompson, I hear you cry. When last we left him, he'd been chucked out of a third-story window. Well, Spider-Man saved him, obviously. And equally obviously, the Goblin gets away. Interestingly, while Spidey thinks the Goblin is Harry, Flash doesn't seem to have a clue that Harry ever was the Goblin, which, if you sit and think on it for a moment, makes some kind of sense. The Goblin is still wanted in connection with Gwen's death and Harry covered up that his father, Norman, was the Goblin. When Harry was incarcerated, no one believed that he was the Goblin due to his age, so presumably the real world has no reason to believe there has ever been more than one Green Goblin. The curveball here is that the Green Goblin is holding a man hostage. The man is masked, so we don't know who it is, but it seems to be Dr. Bart Hamilton. This is a nice bit of misdirection. As you may have already guessed, lovely listener, the Goblin is actually Bart Hamilton, not Harry. Spoiler, sweetie. In subplot land, Aunt May has another far more serious heart attack, but Murray Jane can't reach Peter because he's gadding about as Spider-Man. Ween will pad this out over two more issues, as this issue culminates with Spider-Man tracking down the mob meetup just as the Goblin is about to reveal Spider-Man's real name to the room. Now, if you're thinking this all seems very similar to the classic Lee Ditko story, The Goblin and the Gangsters, well, you'd probably be correct. Taking the Goblin back to being a mobster is a bit rote. But curiously, Harry never had that urge. Obviously, we know that this is Hamilton, but that doesn't add up either. Why would a psychiatrist be interested in running the New York mob scene? What is it about being the Green Goblin that makes you want to be Tony Soprano? We can also ask the question, when did this version of the Goblin gain superpowers? Now, over the years, it has become accepted that the Green Goblin must have had some kind of enhanced strength. In fact, this supposition led to Norman surviving death and being resurrected in the 90s. This isn't really backed up in the lead Ditko issues, but in the Ramita run, Norman was clearly stronger than the average Burr. In the Hobgoblin arc of the early 1980s, it will be established that Norman must have had enhanced strength, as the Hobgoblin barely survives his first encounter with Spider-Man, as he's only a normal-powered guy. It is subsequently revealed that the formula that drove Norman insane also enhanced his strength, and the Hobgoblin seeks out this formula. However, as far as I'm aware, Harry never ingested this formula, and Bart Hamilton certainly didn't. In this issue, though, the Goblin has the strength enough to kick Spider-Man off a wall, something he really shouldn't be able to do given Spider-Man's adhesive properties, and he also throws around a room full of thugs like they're empty cardboard boxes. 
Spider-Man and the Goblin locating the mob meat is well handled. Although Spider-Man witnessing a gangland execution seems a tad violent for this era of comics. Although, granted, no blood or gore is seen. The Goblin's threat turns out to be mere fodder for the cliffhanger, however. He has no intention of telling the mob Spider-Man's secret unless they allow him to be leader of the rackets. The Goblin flies off, leaving Silvermane worried. But a clumsy Spider-Man reveals his own location and a firefight ensues. This is part three of a five-part story, so Silverman gets away, as does our hero. Mostly this issue is a textbook example of the middle part of a story in that nothing really happens. There's a page where Glory Grant pops over with a carrot-flavoured milkshake for Peter to try. I got nothing. A page of Spider-Man deliberating over whether to pick up a phone and more procrastinating with May and her heart attack and Murray Jane being unable to locate Peter. It's a story point you just couldn't do nowadays, what with mobile phones, location software, and Mary Jane knowing Peter is Spider-Man, which technically she did here, but you know what I mean. The Goblin does call Spider-Man Parker, which is interesting once we hit the big reveal in the story, as it means Hamilton knew that Peter Parker was Spider-Man. Another clue, perhaps? Or another bit of misdirection? I don't know. The issue culminates with Murray Jane finally locating Peter, the aforementioned entire page of Peter deliberating over to pick the phone up or not, and then he heads over to the hospital to sign the consent forms that will allow the hospital to operate on May. The Green Goblin, however, attacks, meaning Spider-Man never makes it to the hospital. Issue 179 opens with a decent action beat picking up where we left off. The Goblin has managed to overpower Spider-Man, Somehow, but he's rescued from an unexpected source. The mobs. The mob guys Tommy gun the goblin, causing him to drop Spider-Man into a dumpster, whereby the mobs, under the orders of Silvermane, pick up the unconscious wall crawler and get out of there, see? Seeing the goblin panic in the face of an all-out attack is funny, and having Spider-Man's hide saved by the bad guy is a level of irony perfect for this strip. Needless to say, the hoods prove no match for the wall crawler when he wakes up, and he finally swings his way to the hospital. The hospital scene between Mary Jane and Peter is one of the best we've seen in a while. Mary Jane gives Peter hell for taking so long, and that the hospital have already started prepping May for surgery. Peter, as is his wont, pulls his usual whoa is me shtick, and Mary Jane tells him where to stick it. Quit whining and deal. This is the Murray Jane I'm here for. The good friend who tells you when you're being a jerk. Peter's chums show up to offer support, including Robbie, and there's another nice character beat with Peter wondering if he's cookie dough or if he's a cookie yet, and Robbie Robertson basically pointing out that we're all cookie dough. Very few of us are fully baked, instead in a constant state of development. Every now and again, the writers of Spider-Man would try to make Robbie a mentor figure, and it's a good fit. I'm firmly of the opinion Robbie has figured out Peter's secret, but I kind of hope the strip never confirms it one way or another. The discussion is brought to a conclusion as Robbie learns that there's an incident at the Radio City Music Hall and asks Peter, with May under sedation for quite a few hours yet, if he'll go and earn some money and take some photos. Robbie spins this as, it'll take your mind off things, but he's a little bit uncomfortable asking Peter to do this at Jonah's behest. 
The Radio City Music Hall is one of those typically New York locations Ross Andrew loved that really sold that these stories were happening in a relatable time and place. Here, Silvermane is checking out the new Disney movie. Really? When the goblin attacks? Apparently the goblin planted a tracking device on Silvermane earlier, although we didn't see that happen. Obviously, Spider-Man shows up and fight happens. This goblin shows his ineptitude, which allows Silvermane to throw him the length of a room. But of more interest is the goblin's captive manages to escape. And we learn that it's Harry Osborne. Let's face it, you were ahead of this in the story, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, so was I. Before the senses-shattering conclusion, though, let us pause for a second and ask, is Len Wein playing fur with the reader here? So far, we've been led to believe Harry is the goblin and has snapped following the collapse of his relationship with Liz Allen. Nothing we saw of Bart Hamilton before these issues implied that he was anything but a straight arrow with regards to his patience. Sure, he was a bit obnoxious, but there's no obvious red flags, and being obnoxious isn't a crime. Throughout this story so far, the Goblin's captive has been kept under a hood, the misdirection, obvious, so as to maintain an element of mystery for the twist in the tale. Of course, there being only two suspects neuters the mystery somewhat, but our ten-year-old selves probably bought it. So, this Goblin is mad. Of that, there is no doubt. But he's also wildly incompetent. Witnesses lame attacks on the mob, his subsequent ambush, and here, Silvermane manhandling him. He has no real motivation for being a mob boss. That was Norman's bag, not Harry's. And again, nothing pointed to Hamilton being shifty. However, he does know Peter is Spider-Man, something we don't know that Hamilton knows. And he has been able to fight and hold his own with Spider-Man, again something only Norman was known to do. So I would argue there aren't enough genuine clues to enable the reader to put this together. But that we do is simply because Harry not being this Green Goblin is the obvious way to go. We haven't seen Bart Hamilton since all this went down. So, like I say, a mystery with only two suspects is barely a mystery. More of a turry. The conclusion to this story and Len Wein's run as writer of The Amazing Spider-Man starts with the Green Goblin dropping Silvermane from the roof, causing him significant injuries. But inexplicably, the Goblin saves Spider-Man from the same fate. Elsewhere, Harry decides to put on the Spur Green Goblin costume and beat Hamilton at his own game. Please note, lovely listener, that Harry takes off the suit he is wearing to don the costume. Robbie calls Jonah to tell him what he's seen at the Radio City Music Hall, a scene that muddies the waters somewhat. For one, we saw Robbie tell Peter to go over there for photos, and it was implied that Robbie went with him to report on the story. However, this was not seen on panel, the implication being Robbie had perhaps returned to the bugle. However, here we learn Robbie did go with Peter. So where did he disappear to? For two, the Jonah scene is curious. Jonah muses that the goblin may kill Spider-Man, and he would feel no more humiliation, no more guilt implying Jonah does feel some measure of responsibility for his part in creating spider slayers, scorpions and flies. Oh my. We think we may get some contrition from Jonah, a tacit acknowledgement of his flaws and a better understanding of the man and his motivations. 
Sadly, this is not the case. The scene ends with a throwaway gag about Jonah not getting that lucky were Spider-Man to be murdered. It lands with a dull thud. Rather than deepen Jonah as a character, let's instead show him to be a shallow man who would be content with a supervillain murdering somebody just because you yourself don't like them. It's not a good look, Jonah. Ween then takes the story full circle, with the goblin taking the unconscious Spider-Man to the incineration plant from Ween's first issue. You see, it's poetry. It rhymes. Spider-Man awakens and a lacklustre and rather silly fight follows, with the goblin throwing electro-bats and sonic toads at Spider-Man, and even an odd continuity flub, whereby Spider-Man webs Goblin's man bag into the Hudson River to remove any further weapons being flung at his head, only to have the goblin pull another weapon from out of his ass. We're also supposed to believe that this goblin, who has been a match for Spider-Man for five issues, suddenly folds up in the face of Spider-Man standing his ground. Really? There's no reason this Green Goblin should have given Spider-Man anywhere near the hard time that he has done. Anyway, Spider-Man beats him, pulls off the mask to reveal... Bart Hamilton. Hamilton, being a villain of the old school, reveals the details of his entire dastardly plot. Upon learning all of Harry's secrets during therapy, Hamilton decided, for the traditional no-good reason, that the Goblin's secrets were too precious to be shared with an uncurring universe. They should be mine, and mine alone! Hamilton then had Harry follow Spider-Man and take photos of Spider-Man destroying the clone body. He then had Harry post the photos for Jonah. Then, again for the traditional no-good reason, he decided to take over the mobs... I, I don't know. We don't really follow up on that. Of course, the problem with this is twofold, as I see it. One, how did Harry know when and where Peter would be destroying the clone body? Two, Harry was institutionalised in issue 137, before the clone mess really kicked off in issue 141. So how did Harry know about all the clone stuff? Anyway, Harry shows up dressed as the Goblin and he fights Bart Hamilton. Hamilton kills himself trying to kill Harry. And Harry symbolically sheds his Goblin persona, ripping the costume from his body like a snake emerging from an old skin. Oddly, he now has his suit on under the Goblin costume. The suit we literally saw him take off a few pages earlier. The editor was perhaps asleep at the wheel here, or on his way out of the door, because the editor was also the writer. Never a good combination, for reasons I've mentioned many times before. Oh yeah, and rather conveniently, Harry forgets everything, for no reason at all. There's no reason for Harry to forget this. Whatever. Later, Peter tells Harry a pack of lies, but Harry just gets over it because Liz Allen shows up at his apartment. She tells him the past is irrelevant, only the future matters, and she's sorry she left. It's really neat when a character in the story sums up the themes of the story at the end like that. It's very convenient. We close out with Peter thinking that maybe, just maybe, a happy ending is possible. Presumably that's what Liz is giving Harry right now.
Okay. This could have been a lot better than it was. I mean, it could have been worse, but it could have been a lot better. Thematically, it's interesting. Bury the past. Burn it if you have to. Live for today, because nobody is guaranteed a tomorrow. The past is over. cannot be changed. The future will take care of itself if you look after today. Worthy, interesting themes. However, there's so much of this story that's, well, it's just by the numbers, isn't it? Why not have Peter Parker, you know, the central character, learn this lesson as well? Have the Green Goblin be stunned at the savagery in Spider-Man when he confronts him. After all, the Goblin killed Gwen Stacy. And Peter is, as I've said, a very emotional character. He should have been angry. He should have lashed out anything to show some measure of emotional involvement in this. Spider-Man seems two steps removed from the whole thing all the way through it. Now, it could be because Peter spends the entire story thinking this is Harry, and therefore he's holding back a bit. But perhaps it would have been more interesting to have him know from the beginning this is a new Green Goblin, even if he doesn't know who it is. Because then that could have really let Peter put the death of Gwen and the clone nonsense truly behind him, giving the Ween run a through line from the beginning, where he ditches the clone body in the incinerator, to the end here. Instead, this Green Goblin's just another straw man villain with no real motivation. Why does he go after Spider-Man? Why does he want to take over the rackets? Why does he even keep Harry alive? Why does Hamilton do any of this? It doesn't matter. And because it doesn't matter to the characters, it doesn't matter to us. No one cares about the Bart Hamilton Green Goblin. He's barely a footnote in Spider-Man's publishing history. This story is the reason why. A more memorable adventure may, may, have meant he'd counted for something. This issue does allow Harry to put all that behind him. And that would stick, at least for a while. That wraps up Len Wein and Ross Andrews' run on The Amazing Spider-Man. As lacklustre a run of comics as we'd had up to that point. It's never bad. It's just never great. It's merely okay. It's the Big Mac of Spider-Man comics. You know what you're going to get every time. Sure, one Big Mac may be better than another, but it's still a Big Mac. You feel a little hollow after you've eaten one, like you've let yourself down a bit. Next issue promises, or threatens, the return of the Rocket Racer, but that would have to wait an issue, as the next writer, Marv Wolfen, already blew a deadline and would only take over with issue 182. You can find out what I thought of most of Marv Wolfman's run if you go back all the way to episode 81, where I covered the Marvel masterwork that itself covered issues 193 through 202. But that's it for this run on The Amazing Spider-Man. Where do we go from here? We'll just have to wait and see. There are no emails this week. If you wish to correct this egregious oversight, you can email heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. But for now, everything's going to be okay. <laughs>